So hello from Maui, Hawaii, on this 11th day of January in 2009. This is the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, and my name's Michael Benner, and it's a pleasure to be with you today. Thanks for joining us live. It's uh, just a bit after 1 o'clock in the afternoon on the west coast of the United States, uh, 4 in the afternoon in the east, and uh, 21 hours GMT here in Hawaii. It's just after 11 o'clock in the morning. Today we're going to talk about, as advertised, the uh, hermetic philosophy of the ancient Egyptians. And I think a good place to begin, because we're going to talk about seven key principles today, but there's so little that's understood by most people, it's just not that much material that's available or that's popular about the religions and the spiritual ceremonies, the rites and traditions of the ancient Egyptians. It's been largely eclipsed by the, at least in the West, by the Judeo-Christian traditions. And yet, so much of what is Judaism, uh, the Hebrew philosophies, and Christianity that to a large extent, of course, uh, spun out of uh, the Hebrew Bible, so much of that is rooted in old hermetic philosophy that I think it can broaden and deepen our understanding of our own traditions, East, Middle East, and West, uh, in this field. So let's start with uh, this word hermetic. What does that refer to? Uh, there, there was, you'll remember, or perhaps you could say is, in the Greek pantheon, a mythological god named Hermes. In the Roman pantheon, uh, Hermes also exists, but he has a different name. He is Mercury. I think many people are familiar with the FTD guy. You know, the, the floral uh, delivery logo is Hermes, and often he's portrayed as uh, having little wings on the heels of his boots, or sometimes on the cap that he wears, there will be little wings on the hat. And he usually carries a caduceus, which is a very complex symbol. It's a little wand or a, a miniature staff, often with two snakes that are intertwined, weaving themselves around the wand or the staff. They're known in Sanskrit as the Ida and Pingala. They are the polarities of kundalini and energy. And the staff, in a way, correlates to the human spine and the progression of spiritual uh, evolution, the evolution of consciousness, which is to raise the kundalini from the base of the caduceus to the top, where, again, there are a pair of wings. Well, many historians... And mythologists like Manley Hall or Joseph Campbell and others believe that Hermes may have actually lived, may have been uh, real uh, beyond the myth, beyond the, uh, the god in the Roman and Greek pantheons, may have actually walked the earth. In fact, in his book, uh, Twelve Great Teachers, which I highly recommend, or maybe it's just called Twelve Teachers, Manley Hall suggests, this is a great book, by the way, 
all of Manley's books I love, but you may want to check this out, 12 Teachers by Manley P. Hall. He talks about Hermes as perhaps being like Lao Tzu, the great Chinese philosopher of the 5th century B.C., in that he may in fact be a series of teachers or a lineage rather than one individual. Lao Tzu, for example, translates as the sage and could have been more a title than somebody's name, like Bill Smith or Sally Jones. Lao Tzu could be the teacher or the wise one or the sage and may have been a whole lineage of philosophers dedicated to to gathering and compiling and preserving the folk wisdom of of China. And, uh, of course, Confucius added to that. Confucianism is essentially a, a religion, but more a set of folk wisdoms. Well, it could be that Hermes is that same thing. His full name is Hermes Mercurius Trismegistus. And the last name, Trismegistus, uh, if you have a little background in Romance languages or Latin, is thrice or three times great. Triple great, right? Which is a reference to the Trinity. You know, three is a very powerful word to an esotericist. You know, it's the beginning, the middle, the end. Uh, uh, the three dimensions of time, the three dimensions of space, and the Pythagorean triangle, the number three, is a very sacred number, as is the number seven. And uh, in future programs, I'm sure we'll talk about the trinity of all things. We did it last year, uh, but it's been almost a year since we've done the program, so we'll repeat that. That's what Trismegistus, three times great. Uh, you could say great mentally, great emotionally, and great physically as well. Hermes Mercurius Trismegistus. Well, he is the prophet of the ancient Egyptians in the same way that Moses would be the prophet for the uh, Hebrews, for the Jewish tradition, and Jesus the Christ would be the prophet of Christianity and Krishna for the Hindus and Buddha for Buddhism and uh, Lao Tzu for Taoism and, and so on and so forth. Hermes Mercurius Trismegistus, and it's said that the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, discovered the bones or the body of Hermes uh, inside one of the pyramids, and that uh, he was holding the emerald tablet. But this is so fascinating that, you know, as much as we know about Moses and bringing these tablets down off Mount Sinai that became the Ten Commandments, when Jews up to that time had 613 commandments. So Moses did them all a big favor. He chunked it down to 10, and then Christ got it down to 2, of course, which is to love God and love your neighbor uh, as you love God, for there is no separation. So the um, Emerald Tablet had, oh, I think, eight principles, the best known is the second principle on the emerald tablet, um, which is um, probably the best known, often called the second rubric. And lawyers know the word rubric. It means law, but it's rooted in the word ruby for red. 
And the reason that these laws or principles on the Emerald Tablet are called rubrics or laws is because although the tablet was green, what was written on the tablet appeared in red. And this is also interesting. I think the ancient Greeks that wrote about this, including Plato himself, said that these laws were not carved into the Emerald Tablet, but stood out in bas-relief, right? If you can imagine that. So nobody would, I mean, it's hard to imagine how that could be made without some very careful carving or laser etching or some sort of magic. We know the ancient Egyptians had batteries and understood electricity. So um, who knows what else they were capable of. They built the pyramids, right? Um, it's exciting to imagine what kind of technology they had. So the ancient Greeks, ancient by our standards, 2,500 years ago, talk about this from thousands of years earlier in their discoveries. And the second rubric of the Emerald Tablet is one of the seven principles we're going to talk about today, uh, which is as above, so below. And as it is below, so it is above. And that's probably the best known of the laws or the rubrics on the Emerald Tablet. Again, said to be found in the embrace of the skeletal remains of Hermes Mercurius Trismegistus. Hermes in the Greek pantheon, Mercury in the Roman pantheon. Okay, so that's a little bit of the background. Was he that skeleton holding on to that emerald tablet, the only Hermes Mercurius Trismegistus? Or could it be that um, he represents a lineage? In fact, sometimes uh, he is referred to as the Atlantean, uh, a concept that ancient hermetic philosophy based on the teachings of Hermes is actually um, part of a lineage of philosophy and spirituality that can be traced back to the mythical continent of Atlantis. And did that ever really exist? And did the, the great flood that is spoken of, you know, Noah and the ark in uh, the so-called Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. It occurs in a lot of other literature around the world. Obviously, there have been other periods of climate change where the poles began to melt and there were great floods and it rained and so on, and maybe that was you know, part of the end of uh, Atlantis. But Plato, again, is probably the most high-credible source we have for the existence of Atlantis although he had no way of knowing for sure. He's just saying that in his time, 500 years before Christ, um, it was a part of the mythology of the or the prehistory of the truly ancient world, that there was an Atlantis. And then some people suggest that the lineage can even be traced to the star Sirius, the brightest star in the sky, a star that plays an important role in the alignment of the pyramids, uh, a star that has been honored by Western man throughout history, appears on tarot cards, and we are thought by some to be a, um, a, a distant edge-of-the-galaxy outpost for the uh, Syrian people. Well, we can't really verify our connection to Sirius, 
uh, or any planets that may be around uh, that star or double star. Uh, we can't really know for sure if there ever was an Atlantis, at least not yet. We don't have the archaeological evidence, but we do know that there was an ancient Egyptian society. They've left their mark with the pyramids and with this philosophy, this hermetic philosophy. The seven principles that I'm going to present to you in today's webinar can be found, if you want to explore them further, in a book called The Kabbalion. Now, don't confuse this with Kabbalah, because the word Kabbalah can be spelled a number of different ways, and it's a little confusing at first to see Kabbalah spelled with a C. Sometimes Kabbalah is spelled with a K, and sometimes Kabbalah is spelled with a Q. And so uh, maybe a while before you can even get all of that uh, sorted out. But this is not any of those. This is not Jewish mysticism. The Kabbalion, spelled K-Y-B-A-L-I-O-N, Kabbalion is again Hermetic or Egyptian philosophy. The author of this book is unknown. The book is credited to having been written by the three initiates. And so that's what you look for if you go to the bookstore. Um, this book is also very popular in Central and South, in Mexico, Central, South America. There's lots of Spanish editions available. The Kabbalion, K-Y-B-A-L-I-O-N, Kabbalion, by the three initiates. My research indicates, and I think I could find others who would support this, that the three initiates is a pseudonym for an individual named Paul Foster Case. And Paul Foster Case founded the group called BOTA, B-O-T-A, Builders of the Adidam, or Builders of the Adidam. Builder, again, being a reference to esoteric Freemasonry and all real Freemasonry is esoteric, but it sort of became a social club, and most Masons today are not very conversant with the esoteric roots. They know it goes back to the pyramid builders, but, you know, the Temple of Solomon and, and all of that, but they're not sure exactly how, and of course the real secrets uh, have, to a large extent, uh, been lost. So Paul Foster Case founded this organization, BOTA, Builders of the Adidam, and you can find their website at bota.org, uh, B-O-T-A dot O-R-G. And they have a little facility in Los Angeles on, uh, what is it, Figueroa in Highland Park. Um, their hours are unusual, and it's really a, a rather small facility. Mostly what they do is fulfillment of correspondence classes, but there is a little temple next door, a little church, and uh, you can find out more about them at that website. Paul Foster Case, of course, passed on several decades ago. He was a, lived in the 20th century and was part of the Order of the Golden Dawn. And if names like Dion Fortune are familiar to you, or Israel Regardi, or even Alistair Crowley, um, they were all part of um, the Golden Dawn, the Order of the Golden Dawn with Paul Foster Case. They're Kabbalists, uh, they're very into tarot, 
and uh, certainly Hermetic philosophy, as well as the old Jewish philosophy that it sprang from. I guess that's why we don't hear so much about ancient Egyptian philosophy, is it carries the suggestion that whatever uh, whatever we know about Christianity today, it still was born of Judaism. Christ was a rabbi, right? And that Moses was raised by the Egyptians. So Moses, who supposedly brought these commandments down from Mount Sinai, uh, certainly was familiar with the Emerald Tablet and the teachings of Hermes and uh, these people that, in a sense, worshipped the sun, um, the god Ra. And they had their trinity of king and queen and prince, of Isis and Osiris and Horus, very much like the trinity that we have today of Father, Son, and Mother, or Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So all Christianity and all uh, Jewish philosophy, uh, Hebrew religion, uh, really is rooted in the ancient Egyptian philosophy, but I guess Christians don't want to admit it, and Jews don't want to really uh, cop to it, so maybe that's why there's just not much information about this connection. Uh, and yet I'd like you guys to know about it, obviously. So, um, so much for Hermes, and the Emerald Tablet was lost in the sacking of the library at Alexandria, which happened at least two times. Uh, a couple of different Caesars sent troops, Roman troops, into Alexandria in Egypt to destroy the library. And the first time, some of the really cool stuff was hidden away and survived the sacking of the library, uh, the destruction and the burning of, of Alexandria. But then uh, 20 or 30 years later, it happened again, Roman troops, and this time joined by Christians, some of the early Christians, came in and destroyed a lot of what they saw as pagan um, and um, heretical teachings. So the tragedy is much of the prehistory of the earth was destroyed by the Roman legions and later by uh, Christians uh, coming out of the Middle East in areas that we now know as Palestine and Israel and Lebanon and Syria, um, Mesopotamia, right? Persia, Iran, Iraq, uh, these areas. So we lost it, and yet it really existed. According to these ancient Greek historians, it really existed. And there are books about the Emerald Tablet that you can buy as well. So if you want to follow up on today's lesson, um, Google the Emerald Tablet. It's a real good book came out about six years ago. I forget the author, but it's simply called The Emerald Tablet. But I think you'll find several if you do a little research. And then the Kabbalion, having nothing apparently to do with Kabbalah, just similar, still related in the way I've just described. But check out the Kabbalion as a book by the three initiates. You won't find it under Paul Foster Case's name, but Boda sells it. That's one of the big clues that uh, he had a lot to do with it. Okay. Um, I still haven't found, I've been talking to you, so I haven't really found my notes yet, and I can do it from the newsletter, I guess. Oh, this is it. Here we go. I can find it now. 
because I've already messed, I've already confused Mercury and Apollo. I don't want to do that again. Here we go. Okay, so that's the backdrop of Hermetic philosophy. Hermetic, again, from Hermes. And this is the prophet of ancient Egypt. Uh, I think another thing that's important to say about sun worshippers is that they were, as near as we can tell, among the first monotheists um, that believed that there was ultimately but one deity and that this was really heretical to the other ancient Egyptian traditions that like most pagans, um, so-called, I hesitate to use the word because it carries such a negative connotation. I, I, I use pagan in the best sense of the word. Uh, nature worshippers, people that see the divine as not only transcendent but also imminent, uh, that is within all things and everywhere equally present and all things being sacred, that to me is, is beautiful. And <clears throat> So when I talk about pagan, uh, that's what I'm that's really what I'm talking about. But the idea of worshiping the sun, you know, that idea was, at least in my experience, in high school studying a little bit of philosophy, and in college we had a, a bit of philosophy, and our teachers and professors, at least in my experience, would mock that idea. Like, how stupid are these people? Or, well, hey, let's remember it was a long time ago and they weren't very smart and so they thought the sun was God. You can sort of see that, how they might be so confused. Well, you know, if you take a breath and relax and take a step back and consider that the sun was for the ancient Egyptians an allegory and a metaphor, I mean, even today we're struggling with people who see their spirituality in symbolic and poetic allegorical terms, and those who are so fundamental and so rigid and, and crystallized in their beliefs that any difference is emphasized and highlighted and becomes uh, an antithesis or becomes an opposite, whereas the, the person that's more flexible, dare I say more liberal in their philosophy, tends to see the beauty and the richness in symbolism and allegory. And as far as worshiping the sun, that's what I would appeal to you to understand that that the ancients knew that the sun was not God, for they knew that God could not be less than all that is. Now, I want you to think about this for just a second. If, as a pagan, you understand that the divine is in all things, and even if you thought the sun was somehow different than all these other stars, and now we know all these other stars are suns, right? The sun is a star, and the stars are suns, most of them much bigger than our own, well, then they would have to be God, too. And this tree, and this flower, and this snail, and this worm, and yes, even Mr. Snake from the creation myth, is God. In fact, this is one of the great dilemmas that Judeo-Christian philosophy has. How do you explain the existence of evil as separate from and outside of that which is divine? How could anything exist outside of God, like a devil? And it's a philosophical conundrum that is ignored and avoided and, and not discussed, but it leaves you with the difficult proposition that God struggles with something that exists 
that is not God, right? So it's a catch-22, to say the least, and a philosophical dead end until you begin to consider that, well, if the ancient Egyptians knew that the divine was equally present in all things, then they worship the sun only as a symbol, you see. And that indeed is a pretty good allegory if you think about it. The sun worshippers of ancient Egypt understood that all energy in the physical sense, not necessarily metaphysical, but certainly all physical energy, all life comes from the sun. And so, you know, why mock that? I mean, what 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 do Christians believe that God is a man on a cloud with a castle in the sky? Uh, those that still believe in a, what would be the word? What is that word? Anthropomorphized version of uh, of the Most High is uh, to to pro- project an image of humanity onto God is to project all of our weaknesses on God. So now God could be angry. God could be wrathful. God could be vengeful. My goodness, what kind of deity is this? And we think we're superior to people who worship the sun? They knew it was an allegory. A lot of Christians don't know that the idea of Father in heaven is ultimately an allegory. It has to be an allegory. Much less the idea of Christ being uh, co-equal to the Father aspect. That meant if somebody is standing next to Christ, to Jesus the Christ, right, that Jesus is God and the person standing next to him is not. Right? And, of course, in mysticism and metaphysics, uh, you would say, well, they're all God. Everything that exists is of God, even Mr. Snake and the worm and the snail darter, uh, much less the eagle and all that exists is God. But conscious to varying degrees, aha, and therein is the distinction. So it's like everything is of God, but some are more aware of it than others, some more highly evolved, some are Christed, so to speak, or aware of their Buddha nature, so to speak, which in contemporary language we just might say we think of ourselves as the higher I am as the oversoul, as essentially better than that, and uh, respectful of and honoring the longing in each of us to aspire to that higher self. And in many ways, that's what love is, is a longing to be more. We limit ourselves when we think of love only as an emotion that uh, accounts for our desire to uh, have friends and lovers But, of course, when you capitalize love, it goes far beyond the idea of emotion to what my wife Doreen often calls the divine homesickness, or Connie Zweig in her book called The Holy Longing, considering that every appetite, every desire, and every urge, even though it's often misplaced and we think it's a desire for food or a desire for more material things, Ultimately, every longing, it's argued, every desire is part of this urge of the separated to become whole, the longing of the part to become one. And this is key to the sun worshippers, to the hermeticists, 
to the ancient philosophy of, uh, of early Egypt. To go back to the book itself, the Kabbalion that I'm borrowing from today, certainly not the only book, but a great one, this was first published in 1908 and uh, is now in the public domain. You can find the book on the Internet, again, based on ancient Hermeticism, um, although many of its ideas are relatively modern concepts and can be found in the New Thought Movement. They began in this country in the early 1800s. Much of what's called New Age philosophy is New Thought or Theosophy that comes out of a early 19th century recognition that there were some really important links to Hermeticism and ancient Tibetan philosophy in all modern religions. And these are the oldest, the Egyptian Hermetics and the Tibetan Buddhism. Um, actually, there is Tibetan philosophy that predates Buddhism, but was so aligned with the teachings of Buddha of course, Buddha lived in India, not Tibet, but they picked it up, and it fit very nicely with their ancient concepts as well. So we're going back to the beginning. All right, so here are the seven basic principles, and as I go into this, I want to remind you that if you are listening live with us today, either, uh, well, some of you are on the telephone, but if you're listening live on the web on this 11th day of January, 2009, you have in front of you on the computer screen a box at the bottom of the page where you can put your name and the city where you uh, where you happen to be today, your home, or if you're traveling, put the city where you are. And just above it, a comment. Uh, just say hi, let me know you're out there. Um, in fact, I, even if you don't want to leave your name, I'd love to have the city so I know that you're out there and I can report that. It's always so fun to hear where people are when they're listening. And then a question or comment in the uh, in the box just above it. Then hit the submit button and in a few minutes we'll go to some of those questions and and comments. And one of one of the bits of feedback that I'd love to get from you is whether you would like me to do this in the future again in greater depth. For example, it occurred to me we could do seven weeks on this, not necessarily in a row but each of these principles merits a class. Uh, each of these principles we could write volumes on. So if you want more of this and you like it, let me know, and we'll consider doing that in the future. Okay, so I want to call your attention to the submission box for those of you on the web live with us today. We'll go to those comments and those questions in just a few minutes. Well, let's run through them. I'll tell you what these seven principles are, and then we'll flush them out a little bit, and then uh, go to your telephone, or there's a radio guy in me, go to the telephones, we'll go, <laughs> we'll go to your questions and comments on the web. The first principle, and it's important that it's the first principle of the seven in Hermetic philosophy, according to the Kabbalion is the principle of mentalism. All right? The principle of mentalism is essentially that everything is mind, that mind precedes matter. Today, uh, a mystic or a metaphysician would refer to this 
either as will or as consciousness or perhaps awareness. That ultimately, the one undying principle in the universe, fundamental to all others, is awareness. That even consciousness springs from awareness. Awareness, uh, in the West, we sort of mix those terms up. And I'm fine with that. I use consciousness and awareness interchangeably. But in Eastern philosophy, awareness is the ultimate. In other words, it's possible to be aware and not be conscious of the fact that you're aware. We all have experiences of that. You know, sometimes even, my goodness, driving down the freeway, you might go for four or five miles and suddenly come to, and it's like, oh my Lord, where am I? What freeway am I on? (laughs) How did I even get here? Uh, You were aware during that time, but you weren't conscious of the fact that you were aware. The awareness was driving the car, but your consciousness was somewhere else. Now, notice how easily you could switch those terms around. But also you may say, well, where is imagination? If by awareness or consciousness you mean mind, or will, as in free will or will power, well, even imagination or the subconscious or autonomic parts of mentality would come from will. You say, well, wait a minute, what about in Christianity where it says God is love? Isn't God love? Now you're telling me God is will, not the heart so much of what is divine as the mind. Well, again, it is said that Love is also part of God's will, that everything springs from the one divine mind. There's only one mind at work here. And yes, there's only one heart that we all share. But that is part of the will. God wills its love. Okay. So when Christ says something like, nobody comes to the Father but through me, and forgive those who tell you that what that means is you've all got to be a Catholic or a Protestant to have any chance at all. And of course the Catholics are not impressed with the Protestants, the Protestants, and vice versa. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. It has nothing to do, I would argue, with religion. It's that nobody can know the Father aspect or the divine will without first aspiring to know and develop divine love. For that's what the Christ represents is not the mind of God, that's the father aspect, but the heart of God. Right? Again, the Christians have painted themselves in a corner in this regard by making Christ not only co-equal, but the same as the father aspect. So if a Christian prays to Christ, the Son, then what happens, and even call Christ the King, Right? then what do we do with the Father aspect? What do we do with Christ saying, here's how you pray? And as near as we can tell, he only did that once. Christ only taught one prayer, and that was to the Father. Right? Pray to the Father like this, our Father who art in heaven. Okay, so why are we praying to Christ as God? I mean, it all gets very confusing. When you lay that trinity out and say, well, the Father aspect represents divine will, and the Son 
is divine love, then you can see how the Son is of the Father, how love is of the will, you see. So all things, this is the first principle of hermetic philosophy, mentalism, all things are the will of the most divine. Even the fact that you have been given free will, and you could willfully ignore divine will, and we often do. Don't, this is where the whole concept of sin comes from, right? Although, again, it's interpreted in a very severe way often. But the philosopher would argue in this sense that even the fact that you can be willful and you can choose to align your will, small w will, the little wills of men is the way Alice Bailey talks about it, with divine will, you have the freedom to do that or not. And that's part of the conundrum. That's part of the, the, the challenge of life is to learn to be willful and then to learn just to what extent it's in our interest to align the little wills of men with our best discernment of divine will. Right. A very simple version of that is found in Christianity in the what would Jesus do admonition, right? What would WWJD, right? The wristbands the kids sometimes wear. It's a nice reminder. You can do the same thing with what would Buddha do, you know, what would any great teacher do in a situation like this. It's a nice reminder, right? So um, that is one way to think of how do I align my willful nature and and my free will or my will power with my best and highest aspirations? The principle of mentalism, all is mind. And I think you can also see how this speaks directly to the law of attraction, uh, which is becoming increasingly understood in the world, and uh, the power of positive thinking, and you reap what you sow, and all of that begins to make sense under this very first principle. The second principle of the ancient hermetic philosophers, according to the Kabbalion anyway, is the principle of correspondence. Let me take a sip here of my coffee. Hold on. And I think the reason this is too is because it corresponds to the second rubric, the second law of the Emerald Tablet, which was also the law of correspondence. As it is above, so it is below, and as it is below, so also it is above. It's said both ways. And yet there's even a correspondence to the law of correspondence. Uh, I hope I don't, I'm not too confusing here, but the correspondence to the law of correspondence is as it is within, so it is without. And as it is without, outside of you, so it is within. All right. Again, r simple enough. But the implications are profound, extraordinarily profound. Starting with when the Greeks saw this and the ancient Greek philosophers began to write about this, they really became the first advocates of human potential, of self-improvement and self-help. Um, because 
if the second rubric is right, the law of correspondence, then the best way to know the Most High, that which is divine, is to know thyself. And indeed, did not the Greeks say, from time out of mind, know thyself? Plato claimed it was, uh, in, in by, by his standards, 2,500 years ago in ancient philosophy, thousands of years before that, and allegedly inscribed over the oracle to Apollo, and this time I'm not misspeaking, it is Apollo, <laughs> not Mercury, inscribed over the oracle to Apollo at Delphi in ancient Greece were the words, Nothaisiaton, or know thyself. Imagine going to church, and on the way in, somebody reminds you, this is really about you. Let's say, you know, your spouse is cheating on you, or uh, somebody's stealing from you, and you're angry, and you're going to go petition God for assistance, and on the way in, you're reminded, hey, buddy, this is really your stuff. It's, re <laughs> it's really about you. Well, that's incredibly liberating, though even today, many people think of responsibility not for its value as setting us free to make choices in our lives, but as some sort of onus or burden of self-blame. And if you ever suffer that, or if you're still struggling with that, put it down. To take responsibility is not to shift blame from the outside to you, right? But to abandon blame altogether and to understand that the outside is a reflection of you and vice versa. All right. So how do you know God? How does one know God? To know thyself. And how do you know yourself? To look at heaven, to look for heaven, to seek and find God. And what is the role of the prophets to help you out? Whether it's Christ or Moses or Hermes or, or Krishna or Lao Tzu or Buddha or, you know, the shaman in your local tribe, right? They are there as the middle aspect, as the Christ or Buddha nature between you, right, the third aspect of the Trinity, and the Most High. That's sort of nobody comes to the Father but through me. Okay? So much for the law of correspondence and the human potential movement being born thousands of years ago. It all comes down to really understanding yourself. You will find divinity in your heart and your mind. Right? You don't have to go any place to do that. Now we start getting a little more esoteric here, and again, your background in uh, junior high school or grade school, if you can pull on that, or maybe in high school and college, you may have a better understanding than many of electricity, of electricity's relationship to electromagnetism, and to radio, okay? The three forms of energy that I want to talk about. Electricity has carried along a conductor, a wire, let's say, electrical current. Anytime that happens, there is a magnetic field around the conductor. You cannot separate the flow of electricity, energy, or spirit from the electromagnetic field that surrounds it. Indeed, we make electricity by putting a magnetic, we work it both ways, right? You run electricity along a wire, there will be a magnetic field around it. 
stand under a high voltage power line sometime with a fluorescent light bulb and point the end of that fluorescent light bulb at the high voltage power line and it'll light up because <laughs> there's a magnetic field around it. All right. Well, that's how we make electricity. Conversely, put the electromagnetic field around a conductor, it's called a turbine, especially if you spin it at a high rate of speed, and you will induce, that's the word, induce electrical current to move along the line. Uh, that's pretty far out. That, that's a pretty amazing concept. So anything we know about electricity and about electromagnetism as a physical force and radio is going to transfer or translate to a large extent to a much better understanding of spirit and spirituality, um, whether it's kundalini or holy spirit or chi or ki or prana or mojo, whatever term you want to use for it. Uh, that helps a lot. So now we go into principles that have very much to do with the way electricity works. First, or now we're at number three, the principle of vibration. And notice how all of these that follow now overlap, starting with three, the principle of vibration. Vibration has to do with the rate that energy completes a circuit or a cycle. All right, It's like if you think of yourself on a bicycle, stationary or otherwise, and you start with one foot at the top of the pedal and one foot at the bottom, and you do one complete revolution of the pedals, that's a cycle. It could be from where one foot is at the top all the way around to where it comes up to the top again, all right? or it could be from the bottom or any position in the cycle how long it takes to get around to that same position again is one cycle. How long it takes to do that is divided into the number of cycles to obtain what's called a frequency, right? Just like miles per hour is a distance divided by time, we do the same thing with the law of vibration and frequency. It's how many cycles per unit of time. And in many things, many, many different areas in physics and metaphysics, we're using a unit of time called the second. So it's cycles per second. Let's look at hearing, for example. Hearing, human beings are able to discern frequencies moving through a succession of air molecules eventually hitting your eardrum, right? And if that frequency is between 40 cycles per second and 20,000 cycles per second, you hear sound. If it's below 40 or above 20,000, you're not going to hear it. A dog might hear it above 20,000. Dogs can hear sounds that are too high for the human ear to hear. And, of course, whales and dolphins, bats, and other animals are able to perceive audible frequencies 
that are much higher than the range that human beings are limited to. Again, basically 40 to 20,000 cycles per second. You can hear it. Now, at the other end, way beyond radio, is light. And the spectrum of light, again, is measured in frequency in cycles per second. I know many of you know this, but <clears throat> I also understand that many don't. So the lowest frequencies of light that the human eye can see, the red frequencies, are at one end of the spectrum. And again, um, could be measured in millions and millions and millions of cycles per second, all the way up to violet. And, high, and, and of course, there is uh, infrared, which are colors of red that are too low for the human eye to see, and ultraviolet, which are colors of purple or violet that are too high for the human eye to perceive. So there's light outside the range of what we can see. There is sound that is outside the range of what we can hear. And in the middle, <laughs> between audible and visual, is the whole electromagnetic spectrum that we know as radio and television and RF for radio frequency, this other manifestation of electricity and, and electromagnetism. And to think that the ancient Egyptians understood this, right, that, that their very third law of how the world works is the principle of vibration, and they didn't understand physical electricity. Well, maybe they did. Again, there's evidence they had batteries. So what they knew and where that knowledge came from to what extent, you know, how did they build the pyramids? We don't really even know. But they understood the principle of vibration, that everything vibrates, everything has a frequency. And if you just think of a piano keyboard and playing the notes on the keyboard, what, what distinguishes the pitch or the frequency of every one of these notes is the rate of vibration. So the string can be shorter, Oh, the string can be smaller to vibrate faster and generate a higher sound, a higher pitch. Okay, And if you go down the scale toward the lower notes, the strings are getting longer and sometimes thicker as well. You see the same thing on a violin, a, a guitar, a ukulele. All right. Now, the next principle, number four, is the principle of polarity, and that fits right in. The principle of polarity has to do with the, the high points of this vibrating guitar string or piano string or the, the representation of the vibration in terms of sound or light moving through the ethers, through the air. All right. The high point, and here I think an allegory of frequency and vibration in waves of water is a good one. Um, for a surfer is always looking for the peak wave, right? As the wave comes in, the high point of the wave is the peak, and the low point that follows, that water had to come from someplace, that's the trough. If you remember a little bit of trigonometry, a little bit of calculus, you remember the sine wave, S-I-N, looks like sin. The sine wave is that shape of a circle that is spread out 
in a linear way. So instead of going around and around, like a bicycle pedal, it's stretched out. And so it goes up, and then it comes down like the bell curve that we were graded on in school, crosses the axis of no vibration at all, and then goes down to the trough and then up. Well, if you counterpose the peak with the trough, you have polarity. And out of that comes the duality of all things. And you see this in Taoism, the yin and the yang, uh, the polarity of the bar magnet, the positive and the negative. Again, philosophically, this becomes a trap when somebody is highly stressed and or poorly educated. We tend to see only the peak in the valley, only the everything and the nothing. We tend to miss the in-between. But that comes later. That's a different principle. Okay. That's that's what's coming up in Principle 5, what the, the Hermeticists call the principle of rhythm. But before we look at the middle, let's just look at the extremes. Just don't stay there, trapped in number four, duality in all things, because poles are not opposites. All right? They're not simply in opposition. That would suggest there is no middle. But there is duality. There is this yin and this yang, or the swing of the pendulum, if you will. The pendulum goes all the way out until gravity and momentum uh, get to the point that the inertia stops, and then for a moment there's no movement at all. That's where it crosses the x-axis, and then it swings back the other way. And most people are living in the poles, in the extremes of things, everything or nothing. Are you a man or a woman? Are you right or are you wrong? Or is this good or bad? And I, uh, Again, the people that promote fear in the society are generally the people that promote absolutism. It is either right or wrong. It's either a peak or a valley. Uh, that, to me, is very, very dangerous because it fails to recognize the next principle, number five, the principle of rhythm. All right. After the principle of polarity comes the principle of rhythm. And this says that between the peak and the valley, between the high point and the low point, between these polarities are infinite variations, permutations, and combinations. A very liberal concept that <laughs> everything is relative, that all things have some merit or some degree of truth. Something could be 99% wrong, or 99% evil, or 99.99%. But there's still got to be a little merit of truth or value in it. And the challenge is, to the wise woman or man, to find the merit of truth. Okay, uh, That's your point of redemption. That's your point of salvation is to find what is good, right, and true in the most evil concept and resurrect that, save that bit, even if you let go of the other 99%. In practical terms, rhythm is the choices we have. Um, rhythm is moving away from true and false to, a, to multiple choice, A, B, C, D, all of the above, none of the above, and the essay exam, <laughs> right? This is the rhythm, principle five, the principle of rhythm that follows on the principle of polarity. Okay, all the 
all the water in between the top of the wave and the trough that follows it, all the variations, permutations, and combinations. Well, that's the first five. We just have two more to touch on briefly, and then we'll go to your comments and your questions and then do a little guided imagery exercise to put some of this into, uh, to install it a little bit, help you understand it a little bit better. That's my computer telling me it's uh, the top of the hour. Okay, principle number six is the principle of cause and effect. And uh, again, this is, gosh, this is really important. Cause and effect says essentially that this is an orderly universe, that things don't just happen, that in spite of the appearance of chaos and entropy, uh, there is organization. I remember a statistics professor of mine in college demonstrating the principle of entropy and that everything decays and runs out of steam and moves from organized to disorganized by saying, imagine opening a dresser drawer that is empty and you put 100 marbles, 50 white marbles and 50 black marbles into the dresser drawer and you separate them. So all the white marbles are on one side of the dresser drawer and all the black marbles are on the other side of the dresser drawer. Now you close the dresser drawer and then open it and close it and open it and close it and run it back and forth a few times right, over time, and then open it again one final time, look in the drawer, and all the marbles are mixed up. And so there is this misunderstanding of the concept of cause and effect that leads people to believe that things move from organized to disorganized, right, and that everything runs out of steam. What we fail to understand, many of us, is that there are principles of consciousness or awareness. Uh, Bucky Fuller would say principles of synergy that work in the other direction, and that is to bring order out of chaos. That's what consciousness does. That's what you are. That's what you do, don't you, or do you? The idea is to be conscious of bringing order out of chaos, or said another way, to bring love out of fear. We are the redeemers. We are the magicians. We are the saviors. We each have a Christ within us. It's just a little baby Christ that needs to be uplifted, to, to, to become aware of its potential. There is a Buddha nature within us that has the ability to lift love, uh, I'm sorry, to lift fear into love. And so it's another way of saying it, to bring order out of chaos, even though there are these principles of law, uh, like uh, randomness and such, uh, that uh, or entropy, that's, that's the word I used before, that um, does create an appearance that things only move in the other direction. So we live in a universe where entropy exists and where ordered things like those marbles in the drawer are falling into chaos, where good things are becoming decadent and decayed and evil, but we have the ability, indeed, our true identity, perhaps our best identity, is to be those agents that are able to 
countermand that natural tendency with a higher nature uh, 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 and, and resolve that tendency and lift order and love out of chaos and fear. The principle of cause and effect, everything happens for a reason. That reason we know is consciousness or will, the first principle we talked about today. And so all effects, everything that happens, comes from mental causation. And this principle of cause and effect has popularly now come to be known as the law of attraction. This is karma. This is, in relationships, the golden rule. This is you reap what you sow, what goes around comes around, you go where you look, you get what you expect. Self-fulfilling prophecy, I knew that was going to happen. And so ultimately, <clears throat> there is no such thing as chance or luck or randomness. All right. Now, I won't dwell on it, but we could have a discussion of is there such a thing as grace? Or is there such a thing as divine intervention? Is God, the divine will, willing to intervene in the power each of us has been granted to have free will? And there are many philosophers. Many of the founders of this country, the United States, were philosophically deist more than Christian. They really weren't Christian. They 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 valued Christianity, but they were more eclectic. They were deists, and part of being a deist is to see God as law, as uh, unchanging and impersonal and unmovable, and setting up metaphysical laws reflected in physical laws. Remember, the second rubric, as above, so below, the correspondence, all right, and then sort of standing back, having created its physical creation and all of the creatures of itself, you are the will of God when you get around to deciding that's who you are, right? And so it may be that there is no divine intervention, though another could argue all things are divine intervention, but then what would it be intervening in? These are some of the wonderful um, internal discussions you can have with yourself when you move through these principles in this order and you come to the idea of cause and effect or stimulus response, that things don't just happen. Everything happens for a reason, and that reason, according to the first principle and the others that follow, is mind, ultimately the divine mind, but your will is a function of that divine will. So you can align your little will with the capital W will and begin to recognize by developing that consciousness the way in which you have created or contributed to the creation of every situation that you're in. And then in the most positive and productive way, use those principles to redeem the fear and to love, to bring out of chaos uh, order and justice. And then number seven is the principle of gender. And gender is essentially that masculine expresses and the feminine receives the impress. This is where we get the idea 
from our ancestors that God is a man and that the physical world, the material world, is the mater. Indeed, matter and mater, mother and material, the physical existence, are the same word. Look at these polarities. This is the ultimate in polarity that Einstein proved to the empiricist that there is only energy and mass or spirit and matter. And the ancients, particularly the hermeticists, said, well, that's sort of like men and women, isn't it? That's sort of the yin and yang. Here we have duality and rhythm in gender. And if spirit is causative to matter, if matter is receptive to spirit, then that's a lot like men and women, where the man is causative sexually, all right, has the phallus. The woman is receptive. She receives the phallus. The male's job in nature is usually, in most animal species, to go out into the world, right, to thrust, to um, be the predator, to bring home the bacon, if you will, to be the bigger one and the stronger one, to be causative, but no less is the role of the feminine to be the giver of life, right? I always get a kick out of the, uh, though they are rich, I don't mean to demean the allegories of, of the Greeks and the Romans where gods are born out of the heads of other gods or spring forth from the thigh of other gods or women are made out of the ribs of men. Uh, the truth is that women are the life givers, right? Church, for whatever reason, doesn't like that. Sees all of feminine as being inferior to the masculine because material is inferior to spirit, you see, which is not true. It's material is not opposite of spirit. It's a reflection of spirit. And so they're co-equal ends of the bar magnet. And very important for us to begin to bring the feminine aspect back into spirituality in a beautiful, rich, and, and balanced kind of a way. And this helps to account for the rise of interest in the New Age, in the old pagan Druid philosophies of the West, um, and also of the East. But even in Christianity and Judaism, the influence of women is burgeoning. Um, how many Catholics, especially Spanish-speaking, Mexican, Central American, South American Catholics, seem to spend more time worshiping the Virgin, the, the Holy Mother, Mary, the mother of Christ, than they do worshiping Christ. And, of course, the father aspect then gets lost in all of it. You need all three. You need a father aspect representing will, spirit itself. You need a mother aspect representing the material world, the receptive nature, the life giver, and the nurturer. And, of course, this middle bit, which is the soul or the love aspect, the Christ, the Buddha nature. But you have to have the polarities, the rhythm, the cause and effect, and the masculine and feminine if you're going to have any sense of a middle, of a heart, right? Which, again, is essential for the material to ascend through the love to attain the ultimate, which is um, to know something of divine will or the father aspect. So that's the principle of gender. 
So there you go. Mentalism, correspondence, vibration, polarity, rhythm, cause and effect, engender the seven principles of ancient hermetic philosophy as defined by the three initiates. Looks like it may have been Paul Foster Case who used the pseudonym, the three initiates, in the book I'm recommending to you today, The Kabbalion. It's a great one. And again, um, you'll have to check. There used to be a site online called Kabbalion.org, and then it went down for a while. I don't know if it's up there or not, but if you just Google Kabbalion, K-Y-B-A-L-I-O-N, K-Y-B-A and the word lion, Kabbalion, stick that into Google, I think you'll find quite a few references and again, it's a book that you could order from Amazon or uh, Bodhi Tree or your, your local bookstore. Okay, shouldn't have any problem. I I love the book. It's just one of my favorites. So let's go to the uh, questions and comments, and then we'll do a guided imagery exercise. If you haven't used the form in front of you, do so. It looks like a lot of you have. And uh, let me do a count real quick. Good. We have a real good class today, which says to me you guys like this esoteric stuff. So let me say hello to, first of all, John in Pittsburgh. And he says aloha. Uh, How did you like Honolulu as a city? Uh, I must say, John, it's a beautiful city. I liked it a lot. Uh, The only thing I did not like about it was that it was a city. (laughs) Uh, five minutes from the airport, we were gridlocked in traffic and just crawling along. Uh, and it was just like being on the 405 in the west side of L.A. again. And uh, it's a beautiful place, but I was uh, happy to affirm that I'm on the right island and I'm glad I'm back on Maui and back on the ranch here, back on the farm. Beautiful town, beautiful city. But people who think Hawaii is Honolulu, or that Maui is Lahaina and Kanapali and, and Wailea, come up country. Or maybe no, don't come up country. <laughs> Carol is with us, of course, and she says hello to uh, Doreen and to me. Thank you, Carol. Always nice to hear from you. Santa Monica, Larry Larson. And um, Larry's telling me I shouldn't drink so much coffee. Okay, thanks, Larry. Uh, he wants me to try Zamu. We've had that yerba buena, haven't we? Do you know what? Yerba mate. Yerba mate, is that what it's called? Say hi to Carol. Yeah, Doreen wants me to say hi to Carol. And Larry will check that out. And I know you don't own Zamu, so we'll check that out. Uh, I am a, a, a Platonist in many things. And, uh, you know, I uh, I don't... Doreen just said this morning, funny how we used to make eight cups of coffee and drink it all and... Now in the morning, we often make no coffee, and sometimes this morning she made four cups and there's still coffee left, so I'm not worried about it. Moderation in all things. And, uh, you know, even if I shorten my life, uh, besides quantity, there's quality of life, and an occasional cup of coffee I like. And we have a cupboard full of herb teas and wonderful things, so thanks for your concern. That's I like that. Uh, Randy, formerly of Garden City, I know him from, uh, or I'm sorry, formerly of North Hollywood, now living in South Carolina in Garden City, says, hello, Randy, nice to hear from you. He says the South hasn't changed. (laughs) Sorry to hear that, Randy. Hope you're able to have an influence. 
and uh, and change it a bit. Tom in Pasadena is with us and says thanks for everything. Happy Sunday. And um, uh, oh, Larry steps back in from Santa Monica says he wants to hear more uh, death in parallels to electrical theory. Like to hear more depth. Maybe he means depth. I bet you mean depth in the parallels to electrical theory. Okay, we'll see if we can do a special show just on that. But again, for those of you who may not be well-grounded in electricity and electronics, go to the library or Radio Shack or Barnes & Nobles and buy like a grade school or junior high school book on electricity and electronics, the simplest book that you can, and read it. And with what you know now as an adult, as one who's interested in such things, um, I think a lot of circuits will close for you. I think you'll like that. In Irvine, Robert says, great lesson uh, uh, today. He likes it. How do we learn to forget, as Jim Morrison said, so that we can create new tomorrows and stop focusing on past mistakes? Have a great week. Yeah, that's like um, in order to learn, sometimes you have to unlearn. And uh, you and then relearn that learning is really unlearning and relearning. Uh, Robert, the simplest way I can say that is through a non-deductive process of intuition or conceptual understanding. School has trained us all to be very good at moving from general to specific through deductive thought to subtract, deduce, and take things apart to factor, like in algebra. But what education largely fails to do, and this was my primary theme this week in Honolulu uh, to these teacher trainers, was you've got to get the teachers to understand so they can teach the kids that the complement, the necessary complement to deductive logic is inductive, creative, uh, and conceptual thinking, to be able to on demand, uh, bring into uh, play the specific to general so that we can conceptually see overarching principles. That, I think, creates a perspective, a somewhat detached and mindful perspective that allows us to unlearn so that we can relearn, or you're borrowing from the doors, Jim Morrison, to forget so that we can create new tomorrows or learn again, to meditate, to, to use conceptual thinking in states of deep relaxation, to not figure things out all the time, but to take a step back in a slow, deep breath and let your mind and especially your heart have its way with you, all right, and to reveal to you without any effort at all the bigger pictures that so often seem to escape us. Uh, let's see, Eva Walker from Bowden. I'm not sure where Bowden is, but Eva, it's nice to see you here. She's uh, suggesting that the sun was not actually worshipped, that people communicated with God through the sun, and that Jesus did that too and taught his disciples how to do it, and you have to become Christ-like to be with God. Yeah, exactly. So well, that's very nice. I'd like to hear more of your take on that. If you get a chance to email me, Eva, and I'd love to more, uh, know more about it. Everything is an allegory to a mystic. All things that appear to be are ultimately allegories. 
the Greeks said nothing is real that changes, right? Uh, Heraclitus or Heraclitus, uh, depending on whether you read or speak, said no man ever steps in the same river twice. This is an understanding that all physical things, all things that exist, yes, even the sun is changing. It's physical, therefore it's in change. It's changing, therefore it's physical, not metaphysical. It's a reflection of what's real and true spirit. But if it exists in matter, and again, as a reflection of spirit, it ultimately is spirit, except in its physical form it's going to be changing and maybe true, small t, true in a relative sense, but its absolute truth, capital T, true, is always metaphysical or spiritual. And that's a nice thing. Thank you for reminding us of that. In Montreal, um, Charlotte is with us, and she says, oh, yes, yes, I like this. It gives guidance and so much more researches, and the series would be welcome. She likes it. Good. Thank you, Charlotte. Lorelai in Tucson says, Aloha, Michael. Wonderful lesson today. Thank you, Lorelai. Love to hear a combination of these lessons on principles. You can never get too much of this. And she says hello to Doreen also. And in Bangkok this morning, David from Bangkok, thank you. You're our first Thailand uh, participant that I know of anyway. Uh, wonderful country. I've always wanted to go to Thailand. Um, Bangkok is a big city and has a lot of the problems of big cities, I understand, but still a beautiful nation, very Buddhist, and uh, I think that's where that beautiful um, Buddha statue of the reclined or uh, Buddha prone, the lying Buddha, I forget exactly, I don't want to say the lying Buddha, it's a pun, but uh, reclining Buddha. I think that's in rural Thailand someplace. Anyway, anyway David uh, in Bangkok says, Hi, Michael, enjoy the webcast. And thank you, David. It must be uh, the middle of the night where you are. In Fullerton, California, Bill says, Hello, uh, Mr. Benner. Thank you for that. I'm rarely called Mr. Benner. I appreciate that. Uh, unnecessary, but thank you. He says, The program uh, just as wonderful as Intervision was in KPFK. Uh, just logging in, so forgive my question if you've already addressed it. I'm wondering how electrical induction might work as a metaphor for the mental process of inductive reasoning. Are they similar in some ways? I think they definitely are. And yet, uh, i got to be honest with you, I'm not prepared to discuss it in any depth, and I'm running out of time. Uh, but, wow, we'll uh, make it a point to... See if I can uh, work that up into a presentation and be a little more uh, clear on my insight on that. Maybe you could do the same thing. Give that some thought if you understand induction. Again, the idea of putting a magnetic field around a conductor to induce a current. Now, what is that magnetic field? Again, the metaphor would be the magnetic field is love as consciousness, not emotional love simply or romantic love, well, that's a lower uh, frequency of spiritual love. But spiritual love is that point of harmony uh, between the spirit and matter. Uh, that is the point of magic. And uh, that would be the electromagnetic nature of love as consciousness. 
the electromagnetic nature of consciousness that induces the flow of spirit from the father aspect into the mother aspect. We'll just leave it at that for now. But thanks for the great, great question. And Robert in Irvine, um, KW6B, one of my ham radio friends. Aloha, Michael. I appreciate listening to the deeper teachings you present on esoteric philosophies and mysticism and would enjoy hearing more. Uh, your lessons not only reinforce new thought concepts that I've learned in my studies of religious science, but also provide me more areas of wisdom to investigate. Thanks and namaste. And thank you, Robert. Namaste. Aloha. And 73 is the ham radio fraternity likes to say. Well, I'm glad you've enjoyed the lesson. I think it confirms, I'm feeling right now very much like your response is confirming my desire to move this Sunday webinar toward the more esoteric, allowing the Finding Yourself in Paradise podcast that Steve and I do together from FocusPassion.com to be the uh, more personal development, and this will be the spiritual development uh, add-on. This is the free add-on. Whether it's seen as a benefit of being a contributor on FocusPassion.com or a path that leads people from ageless wisdom to Focus Passion, it can play both of those roles. And so uh, as we conclude here today, and I'll do a quick little alpha process for us, uh, do consider becoming a contributor at any level. Um, as little as 99 cents. That's what we recommend so that money is not an issue. If 99 cents a week is an issue for people or they just don't have any kind of ATM card or debit card and they want to get these, would you let me know? Because I'll make sure they get it for free. That's not the issue. We'll get it for free. We'll give it to anybody for free. What we're asking for is a contribution of less than $1 a week so that you can send unlimited programs to all of your friends. And we're generating the programs, but we don't know what individuals may need. You do. So you can send the right program to just the right person. Either you hear the program and you think of somebody, or you know somebody comes to mind and you wish you could help, and then you remember FocusPassion.com. So if you can head there, if you're on the website now, you'll see a button in the lower right that says Unleash Inner Peace. And as soon as we're done, you can click on that button. That'll take you right to FocusPassion.com. You can sign up for as little as 99 cents a week, build monthly at 3.96. Some months even have an extra week, so it's really even less. You get 52 shows a year, not 48. It's really less than 99 cents so that you can forward to friends unlimited programs as often as you'd like. But your role then becomes changing the world by changing you and then passing it on like a relay race. Pay it forward, so to speak. Give away what supports you. Share what you care about with that really cool gadget at FocusPassion.com. And remember, if you've been a contributor from the beginning but didn't get a new password when we upgraded a couple of months ago, be sure to click on Forgotten Password or Remember Password or I Need a New Password and then log in with your email address and the new password you receive and you'll be able to access all the cool new gadgets, uh, including send one to a friend. Gosh, I've talked my way right to the end of the hour, haven't I? 
and I promised you all an alpha exercise. So let's just do a quick alpha, reminding ourselves that we can do this in moments. Anytime you need to take a breath, do it now. And exhale slowly. Close your eyes and let go. You know, that's a meditation. Consider that it's three messages from the conscious to the subconscious that, yeah, we're wound up, we're stressed, we're reflexive and reactive, but look, I can take a breath and feel safe. Look, I can close my eyes and feel safe. And look, I can let go of physical tension and feel safe. Look, my eyes are closed. I'm breathing slowly and deeply. I'm letting go of muscular tension. Now I can look and listen and feel safe and relaxed. That's the only technique there is. In fact, you don't even need to close your eyes if you just fix them gently, like if you're at work or a public place and you can't be closing your eyes, Fix your gaze gently upon some point in space. Soften your focus. Take a slow, deep breath and let go. And instead of trying to struggle with life and control the stimulus around you, devote yourself to managing instead your perception and your response. There is the power that you've been looking for. Don't oppose. Resist nothing. Breathe let go and watch your choices are in how you look at it and how you initiate the responses that you've chosen to initiate there is no struggle here take a slow deep breath and as you open your eyes wide awake and alert rested and refreshed remember to tell your friends about focusedpassion.com forward the emails that you get Show them how to sign up on the Ageless Wisdom site for the email and tell them about this webinar, too. Got to run, got to go. Join us next week at the same time, 1 o'clock Pacific, 4 o'clock in the East for the Ageless Wisdom.